Welcome back to the Hero with a Thousand Potions podcast with your hosts Tyler and Nate. Of course, this is part two of our coverage of the end of chapter nine. Then we're going to get into chapter 10 and 11 momentarily. But before we do, recently discovered something in the Materia Ultimania that's worth talking about in this podcast here. There was a sub-chapter planned between chapters seven and eight that didn't actually appear in the game. And there's a couple pages in the Ultimania that go into what could have been and I want to share with you now. So recall that chapter seven was the sector five Mako reactor section and chapter eight was the episode where we meet Aerith and explore the sector six slums. This chapter would have had Tifa as the main character and depicts the events between losing Cloud, hearing rumblings about a threat to sector seven and embarking on a mission to extract the truth from Don Corneo. The material Ultimania has four pages dedicated to this cut content. And since we're about to say farewell to the wall market phase of this game, I thought I'd circle back and shed some light on what could have been. So after defeating Airbuster and Cloud Falls to the slums below, we cut back to Tifa and the gang returns home to the Sector 7 slums. Back at 7th Heaven, the tone has shifted to an uneasy, foreboding feeling. It is reasonable enough to assume that Cloud may have died in his fall and this casts an ominous shadow over Avalanche. The storytelling concept notes describe an escalation of tragedies gripping Avalanche from the false flag explosion at Mako Reactor Number 1 to Jesse's injury during the Whisper attack to losing Cloud. Tifa and Jesse build up hope that things will get better. And so when Jesse recognizes Tifa's initiative and determination as expressed through player actions throughout this cut segment, they reconcile their differences. Recall that in previous chapters, Jesse told Cloud she thinks Tifa's soft and probably not a good fit for Avalanche. Meanwhile, there's lots of unrest going on throughout the Sector 7 slums. Locals are reacting to news of another Mako reactor explosion like they did after the first explosion. This propaganda and NPCs' reactions to it will inform the player of changing sentiments between Shinra, Avalanche, and the war in Wutai. But the Ultimania does not say what those changing sentiments are. And Corneo's gang. Remember the punks at the end of chapter 3 with the jackets that had the red dragon emblazoned on the back? They're snooping around 7th heaven. The game cuts us loose to control Tifa to speak to the locals and complete some side quests, which take place after all other members of Avalanche have left the slums for a reason the Ultimania does not explain. The quests are meant to give you a sense of how the locals feel about Tifa compared to when you were Cloud and them reacting to Cloud. The Ultimania describes five quests, all of which have rewards that go towards building Tifa's dress. But then again, in another section of these four pages, they say that one of the quest rewards is also a weapon. One quest will tell us more about Marlene, and some children's center in the slums, which will earn us the purple dress's good luck charm, which is an item that actually belongs to Marlene. Another quest explores Tifa's past, particularly with her mentor Zangan. Gameplay will have Tifa test a new weapon against trash mobs and will earn us a, quote, item A for the Cheongsam dress, and then in parentheses, soup dumpling merch. Yep, I'm just as confused as you are. In the third quest, Chadley sends Tifa out to slay or get new battle data on some Gorger-type enemy we haven't seen before, which earns her a bracelet for the Chongsem dress. The fourth quest gets into Barrett's past and reveals his sensitive side to help him gain more fans. The junk shop vendor and a new sweeper variant are involved, and the reward will be an exotic accessory for the Wutai dress. These pages also have a diagram of Avalanche's underground hideout. Apparently they did have designs on trying to include it, in Remake. From what I can see, apparently developers wanted to expand the room 10 to 30% and look more sparse or less tech heavy. 
There's a staff comment here by level designer Yuri Hioki as well, and I quote, We were planning to recreate Avalanche's secret hideout just as it appeared toward the beginning of the original game. We thought up a lot of little details to throw in, like having the punching bag that Barrett pummels in the original version swing back and forth, and making the pinball machine movable. And that's really the extent of it. We don't get a direct explanation of how Corneo lackeys inspire Tifa to seek out Corneo himself, or how she intercepts Chocobo Sam Elliott's wagon. But we know a lot more than we did before about the remake chapter that never was. But let's get back to the discussion. Here we are, in the sewers below Wall Market. Don Corneo spilled his beans and under duress told us that Shinra aims to commit an atrocity to extinguish Avalanche, destroying the Sector 7 plate's support pillar, causing it to fall on top of the slums below, crushing the suspected Avalanche HQ, its membership, sympathizers, and countless innocents as well. According to President Shinra in the final scene, the operation is already underway. Time is not on our side. In both games, we cut back to the sewers. We've fallen into the sewers below the slums. It's dank, it's gross. And in original, you rouse awake as Cloud and both Aerith and Tifa are down on the ground in front of you. And as a part of that shadow dating game that predicts who you're going to go on the date with in Gold Saucer later in OG, you have an opportunity to load points into either Tifa or Aerith, depending on who you speak to first. Because I am all about Tifa here, I select Tifa first. We wake her up and she's really still curious about Aerith. She goes, well, how do you two know each other? And Cloud says the most suspicious thing I've ever heard. Like he goes, I saved her. She saved me. Round and round it goes. I saved her. She saved me. Round and round it goes. That is so sus. It just seems like, like, like that does not relax Tifa. That's, that's like, what, what do you mean round and round? It goes, did you two go round and round? Like, don't speak in vagaries. <laughs> I feel that. The old girlfriend of like, oh, who is that? And I'd be like, you disarm it with like, oh, it's just a, it's just a friend, you know? But if you go, uh, yeah, she, oh, she's just, she's a friend, you know? We, we hung out a couple times, whatever. She's just a friend, uh, bada bing, bada boom, you know. The answer you need to give is, oh, I worked with her at the photo studio for a couple of years. You know, she did this at the studio and we got along great, right? Mm -hmm. Those fine details that that place to direct the other person's mind and get them out of the like vague open-endedness, that's the technique, right? I'm not advocating for deceiving anyone. If you're with a partner and you run into somebody that you had a prior relationship or relations with, casual or serious, you should just tell them, right? So I'm not advocating for that. But there are those, those like just acquaintances you run into mm -hmm. where for the sake of your partner, you should just be very descript about it instead of vague because otherwise you leave them hanging in, I don't know, is the lurch <laughs> the word there? Listen to Nate, Cloud. Do you know what Aerith said? Yeah, it was much less important. She just said, we have to get to Sector 7. And Cloud goes, yeah. Or something along, like, I'm paraphrasing, but that might be it. That's the gist, huh? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming I got shadow dating points, but we'll see. I'm almost certain how positive I've been towards Aerith. I'm going to get Aerith as my date. So that's fine, man. I think the game comes preloaded with a little bit of Aerith 
predisposition. I don't know if that's true. We, maybe we could look that up in post-production. Nate, you are absolutely correct. The OG dating game begins with Aerith loaded up with 50 points, Tifa 30, Yuffie 10, and Barrett 0. I think, like, narrative-wise, doesn't the Aerith date make the most sense out of any of them? That's a good question. Probably, yes. The simps can't see past their nose. <laughs> Wouldn't know about that. Anyways, so so we get everybody awake, and we are attacked by a giant monster. This is Corneo's variation of a Rancor, like in Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Abzu, or Apps, if it's original. There's a boss fight in both of the games of this for the same enormous creature. Abzu is kind of like a minotaur. He's got stubby legs. I think they're they're cleft hoofed. He's very, very muscular. His torso and arms are very built and he leans forward. It's a, it's a hunched over enormous monster and he's got um, cuffs on his wrists as well. So maybe he was an imprisoned monster that the Corneo cares for and then disposes of people in the sewers as a means to make him useful i'll say i see a boar's face we've got we've got horns like a i don't even know what would have horns like that in real life but they're like almost the behemoth horns from final fantasy enemies i know that might not help much if you're not familiar with the series but and like you said the the kind of like minotaur who's cleft who's on the bottom but I think the animations, they probably referenced a gorilla with how he kind of like Mm -hmm. walks on his fists and pounds around and things like that. So like a chimera type mix of a monster, but probably within the world of seven, completely natural. And one difference is that in OG, he's he's just kind of like it seems like he's commanding the sewers to just do sewer Mm. shit on you. (laughs) Like he'll pound the ground and a wave of what I would imagine his piss washes over you, right? Sure. Why not? Yeah. It is, it is damaging sewer water for sure. But like that comes after he just pounds the ground, right? I'm imagining that he's creating vibrations that are like opening some sort of floodgate. Right. But in remake, his horns glow with magic and he unleashes this energy from himself to do essentially like water based magic. So there's kind of a recontextualization there of I never thought that he was a magical creature in OG, but I'm getting that sense now that that why he's able to do what he does is he's got the Aether running through him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Fairly easy fight in remake. Very, very easy fight in original. You just use limit breaks and spells. He deals damage to himself when he does the sewer tsunami AoE spell, which we have no problem healing through. It's completely negligible in original. When the fight starts, he does like a Schwarzenegger strongman pose. His tongue like unfurls down to all the way down to like his crotch. While we are just like hacking away at him, and he still does this for like five seconds of not being a non-combatant and letting us just go nuts on him. And I like how in remake the uh, the set here like is sewers, but the the lighting is really really good and there's moments where he kind of looks the closest thing that I can say is like real because of the whenever you get like dark lighting with like rim lighting and low highlights and things like that, it really the modern gaming engines really shine in those types of situations. So that looked like it's pretty gorgeous, but also 
something I've been noticing about bosses in this game is like they use the space more effectively. So if you remember Guard Scorpion, he was like jumping up on the walls and firing missiles onto the platform. Airbuster took off and literally flew away from us and used the like exterior space to the scaffolding to attack us from afar. And now Abzu is jumping into the sewers, climbing on the walls, crawling around. So kind of the extending the fight out from being just like the I punch you, you punch me of the old days to like you have to take assessment of your environment dodge things there's special attacks essentially bosses kind of have like their own version of a limit break of sorts that they'll unleash something special they do that is like a heavy hitter you know and so i'm noticing that they've taken care to introduce some sort of thing like that to every boss of they're going to fully use the environment, at least the big ones like the kaiju-esque boss fights where maybe Rude and Reno aren't actually using the space all that creatively. But yeah. Yeah. In my case, uh, because I guess this was the case in the original, but we now extra realize that the, like he's a water elemental beast of some kind. Well, Ifrit showed up in my game and that was just like it. The fight he just got dogpiled by Ifrit. Every move, every flame was chunking his health and just keeping him reeling, not doing a damn thing to me. Hmm. So that was, it was pretty easy for me too. Excellent. When we defeat him, he crashes through a brick wall and escapes. He does not properly die like he does in original. So we might see him again. Will we? Yeah, right. We will probably see him again. That would have been the thing is the end of the the sewer dungeon-esque thing that we're encountering here, pretty bland in my opinion, in comparison to the others so far. Maybe that would have been, not only are you escaping the sewers, but like this dude is popping out of pipes and shit and like swiping at you or whatever. My, my wheels are turning now. How do you mean? Like you said, he, he hops back into the sewers and he's still alive. We don't fight him again at all, right? He comes back in a remake. He does? When? You have another chapter in sewers. Oh, God. Okay. I completely forgot about that then. All right, never mind. And it's more complicated. It's fine. The rest of the chapter is very linear. So we navigate these sewer dungeon. We run into a variety of enemies here. We navigate a couple different rooms. We have to open sluice gates to, to grant ourselves access to different areas. And, and that's all the case in Remake. In original... The sewers is two screens plus a steel materia, and then you climb up a ladder and you appear in the train graveyard, and that's the end of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we're going to skip through the remainder of chapter 10 here quite quite fast. Uh, the enemies that we encounter here as we navigate the sewers are Sahagins, which are the turtle people. They've all got spears. They do jump attacks. There's also blue goose, which we ran into in the underplate. Scissor claws, which are crabs. Were rats, we ran into them as well. And it's not a very particularly noteworthy chapter. There's stamp graffiti throughout the area that helps us navigate in the same way that we navigated the Sector 5 railway tunnel. Which it's interesting because there's a dialogue where they're like, well, where do we go? How do we get back to Sector 7? And Tifa says... To navigate the tunnels, just follow the stench. And I'm like, wait a second. 
how does the stench only flow in one direction and like in and also not occupy other tunnels of the sewers like when you walk through manhattan the entire town stinks right there isn't a flow of stenches it just permeates everything Hmm. i haven't i haven't personally been in a sewer system myself irl i've never played any games that offer a smell feature so i'm just I'm spitballing here with my stinkiest experience, which was probably Manhattan, right? But, girl, there is literally stamp graffiti every other wall. Why didn't you mention that? Because that's, like, in-game, we've already addressed that the Avalanche Resistance members use the stamp graffiti to find their way through the underplate areas. So... Bruh, like, what are you talking about? Tifa gets increasingly anxious about whether Corneo's confession is true or not. Now, we did confirm that in the chat between President Shinra Heidegger and Reeves, but it keeps coming up as we navigate the zone, and it all kind of comes to a head as we get to the trunk line area, where Tifa notices Aerith knows more than she lets on. Tifa goes, we have to get there in time to stop it. We have to. And Aerith is kind of like, yeah, right. And then Tifa goes, Aerith, what are you not telling me? And she doesn't answer. She just gets a, huh? Out before Cloud says, hey guys, come on. We got to keep moving. We have to get there in time to stop it. We have to. Right. (sighs) Aerith, what are you not telling me? So, We're picking up on something that, as players, not as characters, not as Cloud, not as Tifa, I guess Tifa, I guess, to a certain extent, but as players, we're picking up on that Aerith is aware that some things are fated. Yeah. In her heart of hearts, she knows this is inevitable, which the rest of us can't reconcile. It's interesting that Cloud has also had visions of the plate collapse. But he doesn't say anything. He did, yeah. So he he's staying out of this one, even though he's like, oh, shit, I've seen this before. I'm deja vuing. But he doesn't say anything. They do ask, though, Tifa says, is Corneo the kind of guy to make shit up to screw with you? And hmm. we know, for better or worse, Corneo is an honest asshole. He is, you know, like he's he's not lying about being a dipshit. He'll tell you straight up. I guess so. Eventually, we get to this large area where there's a control room. And the control room will help us grant access to opening the ladder to get us out of the sewers. And I really like this control room because it's got one of those 1960s inspired IBM computer terminals that take up the entire wall of the control room. It has like two megabytes of memory in the entire apparatus you know very very 1960s inspired anyways we go there cloud has to hang out there while the two ladies go work on this stupid ass unnecessary resident evil adjacent mini game where you mash a button as one woman opens a valve that reveals a sweet spot on a meter and then the other is a timed button click to get the needle inside the sweet spot as it races across the span. It's completely unnecessary. It's a mini, I'm putting mini game in quotes. It's a chore. Thank you, Nate. It's a chore of timing that doesn't do anything for us except stall things out. And it's the last thing that happens besides being assaulted by Sahagins to open the hatch and flee the sewers for good. Yeah, I don't know how many Resident Evil games have it, but they... Several have this like sequence of to restore power, 
you gotta flip various switches <laughs> to get the needle to land in the right spot of like you can turn on this device but not this device and if you turn on and there's even ones where it's like you turn this on and then back off because turning it on requires more power than turning it off does it's weird mm-hmm. i can't imagine that real electricians operate i could be wrong right but i can't imagine real electrical systems operate on you like just hitting a bunch of switches back and forth to get it to land within a specific needle but who knows maybe maybe that's the way things were back in the day why did we have to have this uh the patterning right the patterning yeah i suppose original had silly mini games that were inconsequential and distracting my memory keeps going to the the fill your lungs full of air mm. uh cpr minigame in lower Junin. Sure. But I, I guess we've got a variation of that. But it felt very Resident Evil E because well, I mean I played Resident Evil 2 remake if you've ever seen the travelogue. Mm-hmm. The minigames are parts of utilities. It's a matter of opening up fuse boxes or turning this light on or accessing or or putting this tool into the thing that monitors the wavelength to create the proper wavelength that makes the next thing happen this is a utility that we're fussing with here i don't know maybe there's a there's a uh group of people out there who are into watching girls work a butter churn or something like that and because that's essentially what tifa's doing here to get this to increase the range of which the needle is viable, she's pump she's yeah. pumping this like steam turn, you know, and it does involve full body motion to some degree. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm, this isn't doing anything for me. Maybe somewhere in Japan, there's a watching girls churn butter uh, enthusiasm circle that this is hitting on all cylinders for them. And that's, I'm just trying to answer the question, why is this here? So who knows? That that might be it. Peak inclusivity. Exactly. Exactly. We don't kink shame here. In a cutscene, we get assaulted by lots and lots of Sahagans, and they basically chase us out of the sewers, and then we, we climb up the ladder, and then we close the hatch on it, and now we appear in the train graveyard, and that is the end of chapter 10. It begins and it ends that fast. At the introduction, we cut to Reno and Rude. They're riding in a obligatory Turks helicopter. Of course, Rude is the helicopter operator, as he is in original. And Reno and Rude are talking. We're going to proceed as planned. And Reno is kind of having second thoughts about this mission that they're going to be assigned on. Although Reeve and Heidegger and President Shinra discussed the destruction of the Sector 7 slums, they're not actually executing it. That's the responsibility of the Turks, specifically Reno and Rude. And so here we are, they're in the helicopter and they are headed to the pillar right now. The operation, it's underway. They're, they're working on it now. They're headed over to the pillar right now. Yeah. They have a discussion about it. Threats to public order are to be summarily put down. That is what we've always done. That's coming from Rude to Reno. And Reno goes, summarily put down. <sighs> Guess it's a little too late to grow a conscience. Guess it's a little late to grow a conscience. So, although he doesn't like his assignment, he's still a company man. He's going to do his job. They're interjecting these guys with a little bit more heart than the original, at least at this stage in the game. Mm-hmm. We're interjecting everybody with more character than we were in OG. But as things kind of expand in OG, I don't know that we ever really get to the point where, like, 
the Turks are actually good guys. You know, that is something that I think like sprung up from fandom post release of like when you look at the Turks in Advent Children, there is no like basis of like, hey, you guys did war crimes. Or like you guys are fucking genocidal maniacs. It's all like Cloud meets with Reno in a cabin, and he's like, "What's up? What do you want?" Yeah, <laughs> you know. And then they're helping them and kind of colluding on fighting bad guys and stuff. And there's no discussion of like, remember when you murdered my three best friends <laughs> <laughs> with your with your uh, like company bullshit, right? Yeah, yeah. And we just kind of. Over the years, it's like, well, everybody, I mean, Reno is so hot and cool, right? He's so suave and he's his shirts unbuttoned a little bit there. Like, can't be an actual bad guy, right? You know, I think that is what happened in the decade after Final Fantasy VII's release of like people liked him. And so we've been trying to tone him down, both of them, all of them, time and time again. And maybe Rufus too. We'll have to see how Rebirth plays out. How they really get into the Rufus lore. I think him in the helicopter going, this is bullshit. What are they thinking? Like, I kind of remember OG Reno arriving at the pillar and being like, fuck you. We're going to blow this joint. <laughs> like, and having no qualms whatsoever about mm-hmm. it. That's, that's just me. That was OG Reno. Was like, r- ruthless. Cloud observes that Turk helicopter racing towards the pillar and he placates Tifa with a comment like, it's just on patrol, not that he fucking knows what that helicopter's up to in the first place. It's silly. Uh, And then uh, we begin to navigate the train graveyard. This is where the trains are discarded. Of course, it is eerie and haunting and dark, and we're navigating it in the middle of the night, and... There's an eerie hauntedness about this place. Tifa even says that this place is haunted. And she says, those who lose their way out in the dark night will never, ever find their way back home again. Those who lose their way out there in the dark of night will never, ever find their way back home again. This is a legend she's heard. And she shares with us, but, you know, uh, there's no telling if it's true or not. The music here has a sleepy mystery to it, and it kind of reminds me of the Ruins music in FF8. I forget what it's called exactly, but it's got that, that trickling piano uh, music. Uh, the, the environment I imagine best in FF8 for this is when we're navigating that Ruins where we get the brothers summon material, the two Minotaurs, this careful, mystical, mysterious, haunted, hallowed temple kind of music here. I'm, I'm getting that vibe. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we run into some enemies, we run into ghosts who uh, are pretty interesting. They look like they're made out of fabric, uh, although they have a distinct like ghostly face to them. And they alternate between being mostly invulnerable to magic or physical, depending on what the incoming damage is. And we also run into Cripshays, which are these enormous stag beetles that always attack in packs. There's also wandering balls of ectoplasm in the air around us. They're not hostile. They're just part of the ambiance of this area. And eventually Tifa, or maybe it's Aerith, thinks she heard a little kid. And eventually we get into this clearing where this glow-in-the-dark graffiti reveals itself on the ground and on the train cars and on the facility walls. And the sense is that there's this 
child ghost that's expressing itself in the afterlife. The images in the glow-in-the-dark graffiti are mostly ghosts or a hand or little brief messages like wrong way or come in. It's unsettling to everybody involved. Eventually, we get to the train graveyard facility, this large imposing warehouse where there's more trains, more engines. It's the place we have to get through to continue our way into Sector 7. And so we go in and we have this really delightful moment, Nate, where, okay, well, we've got to go in. The facility doors open automatically, which for a derelict, there's nobody around here uh, sort of environment is quite eerie that these doors would open for us. And each girl holds one arm of Cloud before they go in. Cloud eventually shrugs them off and they all walk more conventionally into the facility. For a moment, they all walk together in like as if they're all protecting one another or or um, helping one another uh, develop some courage to take each step into the what they suspect is a haunted train graveyard facility. And what I'll say is this facility is like mostly new because in OG, you get out into the train graveyard and it's kind of what we it's just a little extra screen extension of what we saw when you were able to visit it in like basically the beginning of the game. And really all it amounts to is moving train cars around so that you can get by them Mm -hmm. and then getting back into the sector seven area. And later in the chapter, as we do it in remake, I'll discuss maybe some of the enemies you can encounter there, but it's very quick. And this, this chapter that took me, or these two chapters that took me roughly about two hours in uh, remake took me about five minutes in OG. <laughs> so indeed, yeah, yeah. So big, extensive amount of expanding what this place was represented as, and that warehouse that we're entering is completely new in every respect. Mm. Anything that happens in this warehouse, like, is not very relevant to the greater plot of remake. We're gonna get into some lore, but the lore doesn't really extend out into the greater story. When we enter, Tifa discovers the spirit of a boy and uh, he transforms into a ghost monster, but he's not hostile. And he's got these funny markings on his back. They're like orange markings that indicate that he's unique to the conventional hostile ghost monsters. And other ghosts attack. And then once we complete fighting them, Cloud says that he's going to destroy the child ghost, but we've got compassion for the ghosts that look more like a human than anybody else. Tifa says, don't do it. And then the friendly ghost turns into a cloud of black smoke, which dislodges a train car hanging on a freight crane above them and nearly crushes Cloud. Cloud, you might have been right in the first place, but you're not going to get the satisfaction of being right from the ladies. And so, so much for that. But uh, dropping the train car unlocks a new path through the facility, and that's what we end up doing. Other minor notes about navigating the facility. There's a train car that has an automated train conductor message playing, but then the voice transforms into a monstrous voice followed by a child's laughter. It's a fun little flavor crystal of hauntedness that we get here. We navigate the facility. We see more 
glow-in-the-dark graffiti from the child ghost. And eventually we get into a large control room where there's more consoles, old-timey consoles, lots of clutter and debris around the room. And here, a mysterious force throws books and office furnishings like chairs and neon light fixtures at us, and a storm of debris assembles, and then a bunch of hostile ghosts erupt all around us. And eventually, they coalesce into an enormous six-armed ghost that appears before us, and it is a boss. It is Its name is Ghoul, and it's time to fight. The fight's fun. Uh, the the thing kind of teleports around. It it shuffles the debris around the room, and so the environment changes, like the way in which you have to race towards the enemy to do melee abilities. I noticed that counterattacking with Cloud works quite well with Ghoul, although you wouldn't think so because it's a incorporeal opponent, theoretically. He's definitely harder than Abzu, not by very much. It's spooky. There's a lot of chaos, teleporting spooky spells. Another thing I remember about this fight is that Aerith, she puts that like rune on the ground where she can like double cast. Wherever I wherever I put that rune on the ground, the boss is like appearing like right on top of her. So she's not firing the shit at a distance. She's like taking melee hits, which is the last thing I want for Aerith. But, but that just kept on happening. So I ended up swapping back to Cloud to do more conventional fighting against Ghoul. Although when he teleports around, you have to race through the garbage to get back to uh, range. I think I just have bad luck with these, like, do the melee, do the, do the magic, do it, you know, back and forth. Cause like, mm. I'll be in the middle of casting something and they'll switch or I'll be like running into attack and they'll switch, you know? And like, I think I just have bad luck. And then the other thing I'm experiencing with this game that I have bad luck with is I need to stop and cast cure and I start it and then somebody drops a fucking building on me. And I lost the ATB bar, didn't get the cast off, and I'm just like, I feel like that that's happened to me a disproportionate amount <laughs> to maybe you, because some of these fights I find very annoying in that regard, and maybe it's just bad luck, or my my internal clock is off or something. Might not have enjoyed this one as much as you, with the tedium of having to switch back and forth. It's the hell house all over again. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, it's that like precise timing that the game's wanting, but I don't necessarily feel like this game's battle system is exactly 100% set up to deliver precise timing and things. Or I'm like spoiled from playing Final Fantasy 16 where it has those moments of like, do this right now. And I'm like, oh, okay, boom, done, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not like it's easy. It's just everything is so... Like, I feel like there's input lag almost in a way with uh, and not even real input lag. Like it's a programming error, but more so like in this game, you're like a third party issuing commands to people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're receiving those commands and then as characters doing them. Whereas when I'm playing Final Fantasy 16, I just am the guy you know like i i press the button and the thing happens immediately when we defeat ghoul he drops subversion materia which teaches breach which removes barrier and mana ward and teaches dispel which removes all buffs on a target not too bad probably pretty useful in the uh end of the game mm. uh, following that we've still got some facility to navigate i get freaking lost trying to get out of this facility here it takes me forever to find my way out but eventually i do 
It's the fact that the lift controls are back at the entrance. Right. I couldn't even tell you. I, I've already been to that memory. <laughs> you start out in the warehouse and you're like, oh, we can't use the lift controls. There's no power to them. Well, defeating that ghost is what restored some semblance of power to the place, right? Power to the players. You got to go back to the entrance like they discussed, except for like us. That was like a half hour ago. Mm-hmm. It wasn't moments ago. So like for me, I just leave the like ghost room looking for, all right, where's the door? Where's our exit? And the truth is the exit is back at the start of this area. And there's no indication otherwise. There isn't that pin on your map that says, go over here now, you know? And I'm not one of those people that typically needs that. But in this case, I just completely forgot that that was the objective. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So we're about to head out the warehouse. We do get a visit with a ghost that is like a a spiritual representation of Marlene that Tifa sees. And this brings us back to a flashback of Marlene talking about the like lore of the haunted graveyard. The kids that the black wind carries away have to live in the train graveyard forever and ever. So you have to stay far, far away from there. Like spooky stories that kids share with each other. She's getting clued into how this works. But like all role-playing games everywhere, if something is said by a character, it is factually true. So we're seeing that playing out here. There, There is no like tall tales of ghosts or whatever that like somebody just made up. Hmm. It absolutely is the case. And so um, Tifa's brought back that flashback. There is this weird moment of like Marlene asking if daddy's coming home and Tifa saying, not tonight. When is daddy coming back? Actually, he might not make it home tonight. I don't know what they're alluding to here. It could like tertiarily be this moment of tension about the plate falling happening. Like we we know that Marlene lives in this sector. We know that we've kind of gotten hints that Barrett is fighting this fight against Shinra and maybe he's in danger. But I don't know why this scene kind of transitioned to this like Marlene being sad on why her dad isn't coming home what yeah what that adds to our narrative here loneliness we'll see here in a minute but yeah just keep that in your mind the thematic elements of this chapter are not very well fleshed out it's it's kind of a bottle chapter Mm. we reference a few things we never come back to them and this is just one part of it a lot of abandoned children themes Mm -hmm. but like where are we going with this Tifa races to Ghost Marlene, but it disappears, spirit and all. Finally, we leave the facility and a sentient black cloud gets in our face and then disappears behind a hill of discarded train cars. We still have more train graveyard to get through, but this time in this leg of the graveyard, we activate train engines to reveal more path forward. And when I say activate, I mean we turn them on and they chugga 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 through the graveyard to like nudge other train cars out of the way, which exposes more path. But the first time we do it, the train car, it seems like it's being pushed by a small tornado of black energy, which nobody acknowledges. I find that very strange. 
Also, one of the train engines picks up the Turks' radio broadcast. Song gives Reno the code for the Sector 7 pillar's self-destruct mechanism. We flash to the helicopter, which is at the pillar. Avalanche and Sector 7 militia members have opened fire on the helicopter, but it's not giving the helicopter any pause. It seems like it's invulnerable to this small arms fire. And then we cut back to uh, Cloud and the ladies. What happens next is a Tempest attacks Aerith and warps her to a different corner of the graveyard. That non-aggressive ghost kid shows up and she says, hey, you're just trying to help. And then the ghost kid disappears. Then an evil red eye and a wicked claw reveals itself and this hostile apparition of a very different kind reveals itself to her. The red eye is very interesting to me because sure, it's, it's ghostly, and Reaper-like, but the shining red eye makes me feel like it could be like a train engine's guide light, the one that like points out from the end or from the tip of an engine. And so I feel like whatever we're looking at is playing up a sentient, hostile, demonic train thing from beyond. When we see the full figure, it's like a horse and a carriage and machinery and all of this stuff kind of mashed together in one mm -hmm. it's like a corpse of all of the lost modes of transportation throughout the year it's like mm. we're not only in the train graveyard we're in the transportation graveyard like interesting these are all the dead transports mm-hmm ghosts. Aerith recognizes it as the physical manifestation of that black cloud we keep running into. It could be that this cloud is enslaving or controlling these spirits that are, that would probably rather just, you know, release themselves into the afterlife. Perhaps this ghost child is constrained to the physical realm because of this evil master that we're learning about here. That creature disappears then we see the spirits of a boy and a girl playing hide and seek one of them says hey where's Aerith?" and then the unmistakable visage of child Aerith, sitting alone knees pulled up to chin appears she's got an orange dress that goes up to her knees cinched with a black belt she's got the exact same boots socks and haircut with a pink ribbon in her hair she says i'm ready come get me but the children do not come to find her. She continues to call out. I said I'm ready. Come get me. Then she begins to sniffle and cry. Then she goes, Mom. Adult Aerith is observing this. There's some sort of reflective thing going on where these spirits are showing Aerith something about herself. This vision about her. And she's feeling sad. She's feeling alone, very much like Marlene was in the Marlene visage. So what's that all about? Yeah, so I have to ask you, Tyler. Um, this sequence, I don't necessarily what's going on, know what's going on here, but I cried anyway. And the reason for that is I cannot handle depictions of sad kids anymore. This was never an issue before, but in recent years, <laughs> now that I have a child, sad kids just make me like they melt me mm -hmm. right i don't know if that's just me or if you've ever had moments like that recently now that you have a child but i have felt that way yeah just this scene was like oh no sad child stop it wasn't this scene that made me feel that way but i have seen a picture in uh, i don't know it could have been ukraine it could be palestine um but mm -hmm. i saw a picture of of a child 
naked, dirty, walking along a dirt road, like between the dirt road and the ditch. And mm-hmm. the impression I got was like, that's someone's baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, it really, really does twist my heart up to like, yeah. to think about that, to think that that could be Ella. Mm-hmm. That could be Theo. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds kind of goofy to tie that to like video game anime characters crying, but you know, it's just, it, it doesn't take much <laughs> when you're a parent to like all of a sudden be like, Oh, oh shit. Those, those strings are being tugged on, you know? Mm-hmm. So to answer your question though, what is this all about? Um, I honestly don't know, but my best guess is Aerith was playing hide and seek here as a kid and all of her friends got murdered and never found her. <laughs> and maybe because she's like special, the the ghosts kept away from her or because she has the ability to commune with ghosts, they kept away from her or she talks to the spirits of the planet. Maybe all the kids she was playing hide and go seek with were already ghosts like she came here and played mm. hide and go seek with ghosts as a kid oh but there is this like undercurrent as we talked about in the chapter about kids being abandoned because there's marlene her dad's not coming home uh she's crying Aerith's crying there's this connection it might be building up a little bit of like Aerith witnessed marlene's sadness and it then now she's dealing with her own sadness of losing a parent and you know there's marlene's gonna be a character that's sticking around and Aerith is gonna play a role in that so maybe mm-hmm. maybe we're seeding a little bit of like like Aerith just showing up and caring for this person obviously it's a kid so you would kind of just do it anyway like if if your new friend tifa says hey there's a little girl i need you to help her like as a generally good human you probably would, would just do it but we have a little bit of added depth here just as remake does with everything adds just a little extra layer of like okay she understands her she gets this feeling of my dad's never home because of his job right Hmm. and i think og does kind of there we won't ever cover this unless we have we circle back to like rebirth or whatever in the future but at least in the scope of this season we're not going to cover this him kind of in certain ways, abandoning his child, just telling another woman, hey, take care of her because I've got more important things to do is something that people confront him with of like, you know, do you ever think about that dumbass <laughs> later in hmm. OG's narrative? My take is that isolating and saddening people is part of Elagor's process of making them part of his ghost slaves because take a look at that legend that both marlene and tifa have said those who lose their way out in the dark night will never ever find their way back home again those who lose their way out there in the dark of night will never ever find their way back home again well Aerith has been isolated she's lost her way and now she's being uh, inflicted with these unhappy thoughts and i feel like if they can get maybe elagor's spell uh, requires them to be in a very unhappy state, depressed, sad, lonely, to turn them into someone like the boy sprite that's got the glow-in-the-dark graffiti. Sure. I do think you're onto something there of like, even in 
OG with both Aerith and Sephiroth, they were kind of two sides of the same coin of like unique entities that no one else could relate to mm-hmm. and like are isolated for one reason or another. Now, I think we talked about this in an early episode. Like we go through Sector 5 and everyone loves Aerith and sings her praises and can't get enough of her, especially in the re-like revitalized sector five the non like you're gonna get mugged at every turn mm-hmm. <laughs> sector five version that they were presented there everyone loves her so you know she's not that and she's got a great mom and whatever but in her existence like nobody can relate to her like talking to her quote-unquote flowers and feeling the emotions of a embroiled world at every turn. Nobody, she can't really talk to anyone else about that, right? And with Sephiroth, to kind of light into that, he's he's the other side of that coin of like, no one can relate to being a god of the battlefield the way he can. To be, everyone's relying on you to fix it, to, to be the seamless warrior all the time. And like, he has all of that weight thrust upon his shoulders. We eventually deal with that. Again, outside of the scope of what we'll cover here in this game but we do see that side of him of like when he learns how he became that it like makes him feel more alone than he ever has and so i think there's something to what you're saying about like that isolation and that loneliness i guess my last question then would be was Aerith ever in the train graveyard playing hide-and-go-seek with kids, or was this another location where kids just, oh, yeah, we forgot to look for Aerith? Or, like, I, I don't, or is it all a metaphor? Like, is this just a manifestation representing how she feels inside? I don't know. That's what's unclear to me. There, There isn't, like, a, she doesn't say, I remember this, or anything like that. It's very vague. Mm-hmm. It is vague. Mm-hmm. Unanswered questions, lots of vagaries in this chapter. For lore, we really don't follow up with. Mm-hmm. It's It's got feels, though. You're hit with feels. That much is true. So Cloud and Tifa rejoin with Aerith. There's this cute little moment where Tifa goes, Hey, we found you. Hey, we found you. Referencing, whether she knows it or not, the hide-and-go-seek motif of the lonely moment with the ghost Aerith and uh, other kids from earlier. And Aerith smiles warmly and goes, I guess you did. And uh, that's very sweet because she feels like she's rejoined the team. She doesn't feel isolated anymore, which prob- which if you follow my theory about Eligor means she's pushing back on the, the capturing spell curse that he might be putting on her. And we engage in a boss fight. Mm-hmm. We fight Eligor. He's here in full now. He's a red glowing eye in a ragged cloth draped over him. He swings a sickle on a chain. He drives a horse-drawn two-wheeled chariot and... It's a highly kinetic fight. We fight in a large arena in the train graveyard. Auto attacking him does, is with Cloud is not very easy because he very much like uh, striking the the Hell House. He recoils back. You can't get a full auto attack combo off properly. And so Aerith uh, is kind of my hero again, very much like the Hell House fight because he's very susceptible to, I think it's ice spells. And uh, I remember that from my first playthrough. And so I had a lot of ice properly equipped on everybody and we just nuked him uh, with ice. There are a couple different phases we go through. The last one has Elagor racing around, swinging the sickle chain uh, around him and kind of like grinding against your heroes as he races by. Eventually, we, we, we take him down. It wasn't, wasn't terribly 
hard for me. Yeah, it was some, another one of those more annoying fights because of all the, yes. the resistances and everything. But mm. uh, I'll say a couple things here. You mentioned that it is a horse-drawn carriage. I don't know that you can necessarily say drawn because the horse and the carriage are grafted together. That's true, yes. There is ha- half of a horse body and half of a carriage body. And then the body of a man that would be riding on the carriage also grafted in on top and it's all kind of like machinery and flesh and like Mm. this dude is spooky as shit and so yeah just add that on to what i said about him before and you've got a fairly unique fight but this is not patterning tyler this guy is in og train graveyard did you know that is he really oh yeah if you uh in the second screen of the train graveyard after you arrive there is like a rusty barrels um they're in every fighting game you break them open to find chicken inside um but there's like a a rusty ass barrel in the bottom left corner of the screen if you run circles around it it took me a lot of tries to get this random fight but elagor is here in the exact same form uh the like mashup character in og as well and the reason you want to fight him is you can steal Aerith's striking staff, is what it's called, from him. Oh my god. And uh, so in this stage of the game, when we finish all of Midgar, when you get outside of the scope of Remake in OG and you get to the world map and you do it, start doing that stuff, the first time to really tangibly upgrade your weapons is at Calm, the town outside of that. But... At this stage in the game, you can start earning weapons that are even better than the ones from Calm that you buy if you start stealing and like looking around for shit. They have like a a linked slot and then two open slots. And I think they're their stats are like higher damage too. Hmm. For Aerith, this is a striking staff. For Cloud later, he'll be able to steal what I've talked about. It's called the hard edge. And I think we have that already in remake because weapons are so integral to like your quote unquote kit and how you build your characters. I think um, that's why you they just shovel more and more weapons on you. They're not necessarily upgrades in remake. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, this weapon is just flat out better. Whereas in OG, they are. And so if you get the striking staff from Allegor here, you get hard edge or whatever, you're going to be set for quite a while. I think the next place you can get better weapons is somewhere in the vein of like after gold saucer i might be wrong about that or maybe cosmo canyon which is a good chunk later but maybe there's another upgrade in between there but i know everything you can steal here in midgar will supersede what's in calm so allegor's here and stealing is just absolute bullshit and og unless you over level so Getting the Allegor fight took me forever. Stealing the staff from him also took me like probably 50 or 60 turns. Oh my God. But I did get it. And what I'll say is in Remake, you can also steal a staff for Aerith. That's right. The boss fight. But I didn't have the steal material on me, so I just fucking died on purpose. And I'm like, all right, it'll toss me back to a checkpoint. Because there was a bench and a vending machine that I sat at and used right before Elegor, right? The game took me back to the warehouse entrance. The entire train graveyard was my checkpoint ago. No. 
I lost a half hour on suiciding to that boss. If you're not confident in beating him, first of all, equip the steam seal materia for sure. But if you're not confident in beating him, save manually at that <laughs> bench or something. Because holy shit, I was like, you got to be kidding me. There wasn't like an auto checkpoint somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so all of that aside, the fight wasn't that bad. It was all of the annoyances around it that got to me at that point. And it's probably like two in the morning at that stage because I really wanted to just nail out these two chapters back to back. So, yeah. Anyways, when you defeat Elagor, the finishing cinematic has you see gunfire on the pillar in the distance. We can see the Sector 7 pillar in the distance. And Tifa goes, hold on, guys, we're coming. And you can go to hell. And then Tifo leaps onto Elagor's face and somersault kicks it, which sends the whole freaking thing crashing into the train car, or maybe it's a shipping container bin like 300 feet away. And then it's it's gone. The non-aggressive ghost gestures a thanks to us as he and other ghosts disappear into innocent balls of ectoplasm, like I mentioned from the beginning of the chapter. And it's a very quiet, hallowed moment. We feel like we've released them from some sort of curse. And then we marshal our courage again and we race towards the pillar. Yeah, perhaps Elagor was their jailer. Now I wonder if he's like some sort of malevolent spirit that takes on just his surroundings he manifest i haven't watched this i don't know about it but apparently that's like how it works right the Mm -hmm. the horror story it it's like he's not actually a clown he's not clown core or anything like that he's just that's what children fear or that's like what is creeping out the children so that's what he manifests that so i'm kind of wondering if this like big spirit that's jailing the souls of children in burlap sacks like we're just gathering our surroundings the children are like amalgamations of their torn up clothes and then this the big spirit is an amalgamation of the train graveyard itself but like as far as elagor's birth into existence was he a horse chariot thing whatever maybe not you know like a robot horse chariot i don't think anybody willed that into existence i don't know there's nothing like it in Final Fantasy VII, quite honestly. Uh, I, the old closest thing I can imagine in the in any Final Fantasy is in six, where you run into an undead chariot rider boss at Daryl's tomb in the World of Ruin uh, after you collect Setzer and you're about to get the second airship. Well, Elagor is in OG, but I'm just saying, like the lore of how he came to be is not descript in any way whatsoever. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I value the additional content. I'm sure other people see it as a chore. I need less fights where they are pushing me f- towards a very specific set of circumstances for my victory. I'm over that because they've been doing that the last three boss fights. Or maybe maybe Abzu was not that, but uh, Hell House, um, then the big ghost thing, and then now Allegor. I've always been they've all been like very like tedious to me mm-hmm. anyway anyway that's the end of chapter i don't even remember anymore 11 11 we did three chapter finales in one episode my goodness Thank
Thank you for listening, everybody. This has been a production of Gunblade Guys. That's us, Tyler and Nate. You should think about liking us, subscribing to us, five-starring us, writing a review about us, and telling a fellow game liker about us too. If you love this show, someone you know probably would like this show too. You can join the conversation with fellow fans of the show on Discord. Find a link to our Discord on our podcast description paragraph. You can also tip us on a link there as well. Catch us on Twitch and YouTube under the name Gunblade Guys. Nate, we've been doing a lot on YouTube lately. You played the Star Ocean demo. Mm -hmm. I played all of a game called Folklore for Halloween. An easy way to sum it up is Celtic Halloween. The origin of Halloween, the holiday of Samhain, as I guess it's called. Isn't it Sam Hain? No. I'm joking. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. That night is a night you can talk to the spirits of the dead. Well, what better time to investigate a murder mystery when you can just talk to the people that got fucking killed? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And what I did was I edited it to take the storylines of multiple characters and do them in chronological order. It wasn't easy, but I did my very best to figure it out, line it up, and make it all flow as one single thing where you don't need to watch the same scene two or three times. You can just watch it once and then move forward. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of fun. Check it out. Check it out. It's good Samhain content. Hell yeah. And Halloween content. Halloween's over, but next year, check it out. <laughs> it's still Halloween content, whether the day is Halloween or not. If you can um, guess the significance behind the my very first email address that I created when I was quite young, that I dropped at the beginning of this recording, then I will send you a signed copy of my thoughts and prayers. You provided an, an email address at the beginning of this recording? Uh huh. I don't remember that. The very first thing I said. You will when you get into editing it. You'll find it. Staley fan sixty five sixty five at aol dot com. Okay. You'll get a signed copy of my thoughts and prayers. Psychically. Psychically. Okay. Worthwhile then. You can also email us or don't at gunbladeguys at gmail.com. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your patience for us while we get the next episode out the door. And uh, we will see you at the Sector 7 Pillar. Ricordo. Start. Ricordo. Ricky Ricordo. Rico Banderas Blanca from Xenogears. <laughs> I guess that that's might be like Ricky Ricardo. Was that his Similar. last name? I'm talking no. about the husband from I Love Lucy. Oh yeah, I remember that too. I forget his last name, but now that you mention it, I it's so obvious now. Yes. Yes. Your head ain't up your ass as hard as darn Car- as hard as Don Cornado. Do you want to take us through the scene? Uh, let me open up. Lay document. Le document. Oh. And this is a utility. This is a ut. This is a utility. Oh my god. That is the vibe of OG Remo. Yeah. Oh, oh. That is the vibe of OG Remo. God damn it. That is the vibe.
Taking a fucking drink. Water drink. I ran out of my drink. I'm fucking mealy-mouthed. For no reason. That is the vibe of OG Reno. Mm -hmm. Nailed it. Yeah. Am I muted? No, I, I hear you. Okay. I just muted myself for like a long time on <laughs> on my my side of the mic, apparently. Huh. So that's not going to be in our recording for like the last... I don't know how long I just lost. It's not a lot, but I think it's everything I started saying since the train car radio thing. I had to mute myself and then I forgot to unmute myself. <laughs> so on the, on the OBS side of things. Okay. So, um, so that's all kind of nothing. It'll be on your side. You'll know that it's there, but it won't be in my audio. Yeah. Side note. This is all making complete sense to me now. I found your Marlene note and then I read it and then this was all next. So that's why I was like, also, we need to talk about the radio. We need to talk about this. And I completely, I myself forgot about the ghost fight in the, in the okay. warehouse, the big mm. ghost. And I was just like, I was here now because I found that section. And I was like, okay, here we go. It was just another hell house fight to you. Yeah. Just tune it yes. out, <laughs> tuck it into the recesses. But anyway. I tuck in.